As healthcare provider organizations look for new strategies to streamline their operations and improve value, an increasing number are looking at mergers and other affiliations. But examples of mergers that provide clear benefits to patients remain difficult to find. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Lamore Daphne, a professor of management and strategy at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Professor Daphne has co-authored a perspective article about creating what she terms good mergers that benefit patients. Professor Daphne, perhaps we should lay the groundwork by asking you why you call it a good merger and how you define that. Sure. Well, we thought the title worked on two levels. First, we're trying to share insights on what makes for a good merger, which is one that benefits consumers and has benefits that are merger-specific and verifiable, and I'll talk about that in a moment. And the second is that this is actually a merger of two very different perspectives, and we hope the result is helpful, and those perspectives are held by my co-author, Dr. Lee, who was CEO of the Partners Healthcare Network and spent a lot of time trying to assemble and shepherd through mergers. And I am a former deputy director of the Federal Trade Commission, where I spent a bunch of time evaluating mergers and ultimately trying to block some of them. So it's a merger of ideas, and we meet on the common ground that there can be good mergers and discuss what the qualities of such mergers are. A good merger is one that benefits consumers, and in order for a merger to benefit consumers, it has to be the case that benefits to patients that result from the combination outweigh the costs and that the difference will be passed on to some degree, and we call those merger efficiencies in antitrust analysis, and these are weighed against the potential anti-competitive effects of a merger. Now, a lot of what merging providers think of as the efficiency benefits of their transaction can take place without a merger. So we have a table in our paper to explain what that means. If you're going to, say, take best practices from one provider and translate that into your own facility, is it the case that you need to merge to do that? And really, how much of those best practices could be achieved using a consultant or by having some sort of a joint venture, possibly? As you note, most mergers among healthcare organizations have resulted in higher prices without measurably improving outcomes. Why do you think that's the case? Are, are these mergers that shouldn't have occurred at all, or is the problem in the way they were planned and carried out? I'd say it's important to think about the sample of mergers that one is evaluating there. The results that show that provider combinations tend to lead to price increases focus on combinations of rivals in the similar geographic areas offering similar portfolios of services. And yeah, when rivals combine, it has tended to lead to price increases so that any offsetting efficiency benefits have not been passed along to consumers. You write in your article that providers should consider whether a proposed merger would generate what you call cognizable efficiencies, specific and well-defined benefits and cost savings that couldn't reasonably be achieved in other ways. So are there certain types of providers that are more likely to be in a good position to create those efficiencies? I think this is a recommendation for any provider that is contemplating a combination would be to take a hard look at what are the potential consumer benefits and cost savings that they hope to achieve through an affiliation with their partner and whether that requires full financial integration in order to achieve, because if it can be realized through other means, perhaps hiring a consultant or even working with a partner from afar without potentially adverse market consequences, 
then that kind of an efficiency benefit isn't what we call merger-specific. So when providers do define the goals and the expected benefits of a merger clearly and reasonably in advance, who's then responsible for making sure that they follow through, that in the end they generate value for patients? I believe that would be the responsibility of the board. In the end, the postmortems on mergers rarely exist. What we do have are these fairly large systematic studies that really show price effects and no significant offsetting quality benefits. And I don't know that there is accountability in that system. And one of the things that I hope for by writing this article is that boards will demand firm plans before mergers are consummated and then hold the leaders of the newly merged organization accountable for acting and delivering on those plans. In another recent Perspective article, Herzlinger and co-authors argued that one of the biggest problems with allowing large hospital systems to merge is that they often keep innovative entrants out of the healthcare field. Would a merger that fits your definition of a good merger still have that effect, or is there some way around that? And that's a thoughtful question. To the extent that any entity with market power expands, and that expansion might then create a larger barrier to entry for other hospitals, there is a potential consequence there of not having innovative new players enter the marketplace. A good merger would have enough offsetting efficiencies that would be passed on to consumers to counteract that price effect. It might, though, not fully offset the impact on entry, so it's an additional point to consider. I will say, at least in the hospital sector, we're not expecting a lot of entry. Aside from stricter regulation, are there ways to encourage providers to pursue mergers that are expected to reduce costs and improve care rather than mergers that limit competition? One has to think about how you define regulation because I'm a big believer that sunshine is the best disinfectant and one could require more information be made public about these transactions and that public scrutiny can play an important role in this and I wouldn't call that direct regulation. For example, the states of Massachusetts and Connecticut, to my knowledge, require a notification of transactions in the provider space. And at least in Massachusetts, that has led to very significant and thoughtful analyses of transactions and public involvement in discussions. Finally, what's the role of individual doctors when their employer is involved in this sort of negotiation? Is there a way for the individual clinician to distinguish a good merger from a bad one? certainly know that many clinicians have what one could call a cynical perspective, but perhaps it is more a realistic perspective that many of these combinations are efforts to stave off competitors, to buy someone before that someone is bought by a rival, to ensure referral streams, to gain an upper hand in negotiations with an insurer, which I would call the wrong reasons. And so what I would urge a clinician to do when they find themselves on the other end of a vote with regard to the staff's view on a transaction is to to pose the hard questions and say, how will this create value for my patients? How will we be passing on whatever benefits we think we can realize through this merger to consumers? Thank you, Professor Daphne.